the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce today's discussion, I just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there. And if you can't do that, maybe consider leaving us a nice review on iTunes. Today's episode will be a little bit different. I had the pleasure of joining Adam and Craig from Acid Horizon on a live stream for the Zero Books YouTube channel, and we discussed John Baudrillard's Ecstasy of Communication. So here is that discussion. Welcome back to Zero Books and Repeater Media. I'm Craig, of course, with Adam here from Acid Horizon. And once again, we have brought the inimitable Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour back into the studio to discuss the work of Jean Baudrillard. We have Cooper with us today. Today, we're going to take a look at the essay, The Ecstasy of Communication, as an ancillary text connected to Mark Fisher's broader project of post-capitalist desire. But given how much time has passed since that original lecture series, I, we, we feel that it's important to take this text on its own terms, especially from the vantage point of the ongoing evolution of the order of simulacra, as it were, which of course includes, but is not exhausted by things like social media. And today we also have some of our patrons in the live discussion, so we just want to say thank you for supporting and joining us today. And of course, we have Cooper. And if you haven't already subscribed to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, maybe just stop this video right now. If you're watching the recording, go ahead and subscribe. I'll have something in the show notes and just get them in, into your heavy rotation. So, Cooper, thank you for coming back today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Like I said, g glad to be rocking the uh, desert fashion with Adam. So, long live the fighters or something like that, I, think, I suppose. Digital <laughs> nomads in the desert. That's right. So, the ecstasy of communication. Uh, my general impression of this essay, and, and Cooper, we've done Baudrillard together in the past, and of course, I've looked at Baudrillard on my own. What I like about this essay, I don't think it necessarily reduces all of Baudrillard's work into a single essay, but what I think we get here is a pretty strong thumbnail sketch of what's important to him philosophically, not only the sort of evolution of simulacra in the form of the ecstasy of communication, where there's this departure from this sort of theatrics of subjectivity into this new kind of subjectivity. But also, I think we get a picture of the moral and political commitments of Baudrillard as well, and what he believes is happening, and what will happen with the ongoing evolution of things like social media technology and so forth. Although this essay was written well before that. What do you think, Cooper? What is the ecstasy of communication, or what stands out for you in this particular essay? So much stands out. For one, I should say, maybe first of all, that, you know, this is the this book or this essay is largely inspiration for a book that I actually want to write for zero books about the libidinal economics of Twitter, particularly. So there's there's that big component there. So this is definitely something that's very important to me, something I've thought a lot about. But I think Twitter is a very good way to conceive of this in a concrete fashion. And I want to read just a couple of lines from the text that I think will perhaps push that point home pretty strongly and forcefully. Our entire culture will lead from a disappearance of the forms of expression and competition towards an extension of the forms of chance and giddiness. These no longer imply any game of the scene, mirror, challenge, or otherness. They are rather ecstatic, solitary, and narcissistic. 
So I think you can, it's not the greatest leap to jump from there to something like Twitter or Instagram or any of these other platforms today and see that sort of this very quickly devolves into this narcissistic communication for communication, taking reveling perhaps in the destruction of all meaning in a sense, and this sort of frenzy of exchange and that sort of frenzy being the only driving logic is the repetition and the increasing speed of communication and enjoyment and so forth. The one thing I really appreciate about this essay is the idea that our subjectivity you know, fundamentally was transmogrified by, for example, the introduction of the actual physical television into the homes of Americans and Europeans, and that it became a kind of operator in the social space that transfigured subjectivity. That and so much more, I think, can be said about the introduction of digital technologies through mobile devices. And you brought up some terms that I want to dig into a little bit is this distinction that Baudrillard makes between the notion of the scenic or the aesthetic characterizing the pre-digital age, and then the introduction of television causes a, a sort of erasure of that scenic and aesthetic dimension of subjectivity onto what he calls the ecstasy of communication. Adam, what stands out for you here with respect to all of that? I, mean, I think, I think orienting towards Twitter in a way is quite a good way of doing it, partly because it reminds me of the work of a digital anthropologist called Hussein Kizvani. And he also has a podcast called 10,000 Posts with, with, with Phoebe Roy. And they talk about sort of the central thesis of their sort of work is, I did everything now, is posting. And it's actually got a Deleuzean root to this, because in the, of the refrain plateau, Deleuze talks about, you know, art is fundamentally a poster. It is fundamentally a marking of territory with a kind of qualitative development of oneself. And it's become more narcissistic as it's gone on. I mean, next of communication for me is exactly the fact that everything is now tied to register of expression that is posting. I mean, it's politically, how many things are just posting? How many political campaigns now are driven by uh, a senator has been radicalized by on Twitter, radicalized by posts, but it fucks at QAnon. It, it is posts taking over the very right, yeah. structure of community. The idea that you can do, I mean, maybe to do a bit of punditry here and God, please strike me down for doing so. <laughs> It's, I mean, the Republicans lost, they didn't do as well as they thought they did because all of, almost all of their fucking campaigns were based around posting and owning the libs on Twitter. Trump, Trump is a walking embodiment of posting. He is this purely narcissistic, it's purely for the screen. And I think the idea of the screen is very much an interesting focal point here. Because before, I was talking about communicate, communication technology being sold to us as, in some ways, emancipatory. Think about the early days of Silicon Valley or the example he gives of the car. The car is an expression, particularly in American mythology, of personal freedom. You are the head of the car. It is an extension of your desire to stretch beyond the hometown, let's say. And now the car is less, not completely erased as such, but is becoming less that. And you're more of an integrated part of it as making a pun, say, between commuting and communication. It's being taken over in the sense of a job. And this is definitely the case in the rise of, say, ride-sharing apps, like Uber and the like, where the driver is components, really. It has no expression of autonomy whatsoever. It's purely mediated by the phone screen. And, I mean, there's always a risk here of getting a bit into you know, Black Mirror territory, <laughs> where, you know, what if your nan ran on batteries kind of thing. But I think that the XT communication here is a really, it's a really solid look at how the, how, Essentially, digitized communication and expanding across more and more kinds of life reduces things to the commodity form. It's a very Marxist argument, really. It reduces everything to exchange value. The XC of communication is that the objects, in terms of their material properties, their use value, becomes less and less relevant to the fact that their exchange value and the idea that it can be made equivalent to an abstract form of value, say a dollar or say a currency you want to use, is more... is basically where technology is going. And I think this use of exchange value is particularly prescient given the fact that, at least in the imperial core, we can be producing, because to get very Marxist here, it's, a labor, it's not labor theory of value in a way, it's labor creates value, it doesn't create wealth in the same way. Under the value form, it creates value for the capitalist. And we create value now all the time without doing what's in the most immediate sense of being hammering a girder or something or making a cake or, you know, it's 
Instead, it's we are constantly sweating out value in the form of the commodity that is data. The production of value is becoming more and more detached, at least in the imperial core. Of course, the technologies that we rely on, we rely on, for example, coltan extracted from horrific labor conditions in Central Africa, for example. But in the imperial core, the forms of communication are moving the value form across all kinds of spaces through the idea of data and through the idea of communication, because data is only valuable insofar as it could be communicated and speculated upon. I would say to kind of use the car metaphor and, and drive this home a bit further, you can look at this in the context of something like the hyperreal, for example, would be, as Adam was kind of describing, would be something like George Floyd and the way that this is viewed, at least on the ostensible, ostensibly on the left, broadly, very broadly speaking, including left liberals, the events have sort of been memory hold, but on the right, like whole cities were being burned to the ground. It was like the uh, Paris Commune all over again. So you can kind of see the narrative begins, the images, that shit becomes the more real than the actual events that happened. So just very simply there, I think you can kind of see... <laughs> how that sort of works. That's a real great example of this. Going back to the Gulf War did not take place. I mean, you can kind of see the same way that these narratives develop their own internal logic and own sort of motion. And with something like digital communication technology, that just enables this to go further and further down this sort of rabbit hole of simulacra. Yeah, I like that you brought up the example of the car. Baudrillard points out that the car can become this kind of subjective double. You know, when we think of the 20th century as a whole, especially the latter part of the 20th century, the car is invested with this meaning that parallels a certain form of subjectivity. But then Baudrillard moves to this idea of the astronaut and this notion of private telematics, which I think is a brilliant idea. And if folks are following the work that we do, Jason Bobak Mohageg in Omnicide One has a concept that actually tracks pretty nicely with this. In his section on Algomania, he talks about the obsession with light that takes place on a kind of switchboard. And so if we think about what, what's the sort of imaginal picture that we have of an astronaut, everything from the David Bowie tune to a film like Moon, for example, there's this idea that the solo, the solipsistic astronaut figure spends their time at the switchboard, responding to certain lights, turning things on and off. And the light board itself is kind of a surface through which their own subjectivity moves. And I, I think there are some parallels with the way that we respond to social media. For example, notifications, email. I mean, how many times throughout the day, if I'm just standing in line at the grocery store, just pop open my email and just start deleting stuff, just, just deleting stuff or just going through notifications, just deleting, clicking on certain things, clicking through, and just being moved along by these digital surfaces. And so the idea that, that the light board, and here where light represents not just lights itself, but the idea of a notification, forces us to be taken along with this digital tide. And the idea that we become ever more solipsistic in the manner of an astronaut is... It, to me, is completely frightening. There's a certain strain of imagination, I think, that comes with it, a sort of shadow in the form of touch grass, right? There's this sort of lingering injunction to go out and touch grass, which really is to get in touch with the real, because the plane of the symbolic is not only is it so compelling in its incessant drift, taking us through, from this vector to that vector, but it becomes a form of addiction where this idea of touch grass is a kind of line of flight from that. There's a lot of collective guilt that manifests there, some anxiety and even some rage around that. And so I think this, there's this connection that we can make between the solipsism of the astronaut and this injunction to get in touch with this imaginal primordial being that's in the grass. I like the idea of the David Bowie song because when Major Tom is up there, it's not like Leica. You just, you're there purely to test a machine. A machine's already functional. It's all about the heroism of going up there. And what's one of the first things that the communication asks is that the papers want to know whose shirts you wear, Major Tom. Mm -hmm. They're asking him, <laughs> they're asking him for an endorsement. It's, I mean, even thinking about, because it's, it's I mean, it's all about networks, isn't it, really? It, that is the central it's, it's fundamentally about networks and the real upon which these networks are built from the perspective of those within this, within specifically the Imperial Core. It's as the TV shows up, for example, it's all about 
a network of, you're now part of a network of communication. You are connecting to a network, be it you know, cable or satellite. And without it, the room seems kind of empty. I mean, I mean, it's or that TV room, living room. I mean, what do we think about the network science behind this? I think some of the concepts that, that we need to lay out in order to sort of get a handle on all of this are what Baudrillard thinks about obscenity. One of the questions that remains for me, and perhaps I just haven't read enough Baudrillard to really have a, a strong answer for this, is what does obscenity mean in this context? Is it a grotesqueness? Because it seems almost like there's a kind of nostalgia in, in Baudrillard's work, that we have been removed from the real. And clearly for him, there's no turning back, at least not without some sort of cataclysm taking place. And the idea that we move from, for example, this sort of theater of relations, and now that we have the ecstasy of communication, we also have these two forms of hot and cool communication. He makes a distinction. And so th those are some things that, that I'd like to flesh out. And maybe, I don't know, Cooper, we didn't really answer Adam's question about the networking, but maybe you can address that whole package of concerns, the, the concept of hot and cool, of obscenity, and of networking. The obscenity thing, I think, was was rather difficult to parse. I'm not exactly sure what he was really getting at. I don't think it's precisely what we typically think of as obscenity. I don't know that I could really, I might have to leave that up to you guys. Well, maybe I can jump in because he, sure. here's a note that I took, and this will kind of address Adam's question. And what I've written here is kind of, I'm cribbing from Baudrillard a bit, but I have my own interpolations of it. He says that the hot sexual obscenity is the private universe in which things remain unspoken and silence prevails through a kind of oppression. However, a cool communicational obscenity involves superficial saturation, endless harassment, and extermination of interstitial space. And it disregards the tendency of information as a homogenous substance to specially and temporarily populate all mediums of expression and exhaust them in some way. Now, one of the examples that I have for obscenity here, to just go back to the networking example, the idea that there's a form of su subjectivation or expression of subjectivity that at one time relied on not only a kind of repression of certain elements, and I mean, we can think of anything here from just the basic Oedipal so social subjection, for example, maybe the sort of parallel concepts here are social subjection and machinic enslavement that we see in Deleuze and Gattari, but the idea in Baudrillard that that the telematics or the informatics go on to occupy every cell of society, that they take up residence in every interstice of communication and of silence too, to the extent that it's not a kind of repression that's driving us. It, it almost goes back to what Deleuze and maybe even Mark Fisher says to a certain extent. It's not that we have something to say or that we are being repressed. It's that, that there's this constant injunction to say something. And this is what social media provokes from us too. On the obscenity point, one, this was a sort of, I guess, a sort of liberal tangent that I took on my own here is that think of the idea of a quote tweet, for example, you know, amidst the constant injunction to say something on the internet and put it out to the space and then kind of pair that with what Adam was saying about Bataille's notion of sovereignty, anything that exists on the timeline is immediately available for my corruption or appropriation. I can quote tweet you at any time, right? And completely convert, invert the meaning, layer on moral semiotics, introduce a kind of irony, for example, screenshotting something as a kind of a appropriation that can then be redeployed in the form of a tweet. Twitter creates this kind of surface. And this is what Baudrillard is saying is that the evolution of the digital is the expansion of, of surfaces. And one way that I do believe that this is obscene is think about any tweet that you've seen that you know could be thing on the spectrum from cute kittens to like a severely heartfelt tweet, like maybe somebody who you follow that might be suffering from a disease, for example. And you've seen those kind of tweets where you get emotionally invested and you only have to scroll just a few inches down the timeline and it's a fight inside a Burger King. So the emotional tonality between that original tweet and then the next tweet instigates the necessity to have this sort of emotional plasticity, I think, which is really unnerving at times. And I think sometimes makes 
Twitter really difficult to use. I think that impulse to log off from time to time occurs in virtue of the kind of emotional dexterity or plasticity that's demanded of us. I mean, just to build on this, I think as well, to think about obscenity, it's partially part of, it's Baudrillard's critique of the idea that we live in society of a spectacle. And as a summary of his argument, the idea is that we are no longer, you know, public space is where the spectacle was said to operate. But public space is no longer a spectacle because private space is now public. There is this constant space of merging with communicative technologies, the constant, in the Greek, you'd say, kenosis, constant giving of oneself, pouring oneself at unfiltered. People do have filters, but things are becoming, I mean, things are generally less. I mean, when else in human history has everyone had the ability to send you know, their shower thoughts out to millions upon millions of people? The private space has become a space of communication, whereas purely, I guess, well, previously the model, at least, in terms of how the society sold itself, was that people have their private lives, the sacredness of the individual here, and then we bring you out through spectacle. We bring you out for advertising. We bring you out into the public square to see the Goodyear blimp or something, see the official parade. And that's, it's not that it's, it's, it's gone. I mean, it's not, I don't think Baudrillard is saying it's completely, but this is the dominant tendency or tendency which, at least at the time, has accelerated to the point which we are here at now. I mean, in the chat, actually, James, I saw you brought up how Fisher talks about this in obscenity in flatline constructs in terms of videodrome. And it's been on my list for ages. I still need to see it. But I was wondering, actually, if we can just bring you in a little bit earlier, would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Because I'm really interested to hear what Fisher has to say about this in that book. You, you don't have to, of course, but or you can put it in the chat and we can read it out. But honestly, feel free, because I find that really fascinating, especially in the age of, say, VR headsets, when you know, sort of James Wood launching his face into the screen of Debbie Harry you can now just, you know, get your own virtual Debbie Harry on one of these things or some shit, like, <laughs> which you shouldn't do because that's an incredibly degrading thing. But Oh, wait, actually. Is this that James come in? Yeah, go for it, James. I think part of the reason Fisher brings up Videodrome for this part is Bojard explicitly mentions choreography as an example in the obscene, and it's not just obscene and maybe the more usual sense of the term because as Fisher just uses Videodrome to sort of show is that the point of, Choreography is about like that tactility, I guess, which he's pulling from McLuhan, where the obscenity is not that, oh my God, we can't see this public light. But what's obscene is that the distance which should exist between you and this act and the scene, the whole point of it is to close. The whole point of choreography is to close that distance. And that's what's obscene about it is that like you have sort of, that's like the new flesh, the fusion of the video realm and the real and that's what's so perverse and obscene. It's like the, the contamination of the real in, I guess, kind of what Fisher goes for. It no, that's great. That's great. Cooper, you had something. Yeah, I just want to read from the text here. So let's see. In any case, we will suffer from this forced extroversion of all interiority, from this forced introjection of all exteriority, which is implied by the categorical imperative of communication. Perhaps in this case, one should apply metaphors drawn from pathology. If hysteria was the pathology of the exacerbated staging of the subject, of the theatrical and operational conversion of the body, and if paranoia was the pathology of organization of the structuring of a rigid and jealous world. What does Baudrillard mean? In, see, this is where Taylor would be helpful. What does he, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What does he mean by giddiness here? That with the evolution of the, of the private telematics? Well, you know, I don't know about you or Adam or anybody really, but... If I come up with a tweet that I think is good, that I think that the other is going to really like, there's going to be a libidinal charge, I get giddy. I'm excited. I'm so excited to tweet that out. Like sometime, I don't know if anybody else has been in the shower and had a tweet come. And like, literally, I've gotten out of my shower. I've like to grab my phone and tweet something. That's the ecstasy of communication when you're willing to disrupt for that, for whatever that chance of, I don't know, what is it? Is it recognition? Because I know... Even though Baudrillard doesn't really bring up the relation, the Hegelian relationship with the bondsman and the servant and so forth here, but it's definitely a big background in symbolic exchange and this idea of like being recognized. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, there's a perverse kind of recognition in the form of likes and that sort of thing. But I think the speed at which the impulse to tweet, the actual tweet being out there and the shelf life of a tweet, the speed at which that actually occurs 
doesn't allow it to fall in the familiar register of recognition that maybe Hegel's talking about, but maybe it could. The counter argument might be that it operationalizes that impulse to be recognized right, in a right. really perverse kind of way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're onto something. That's the pathology angle of it that I think that quote was sort of getting at. One thing that I would be curious to get both of your opinions on would be this, and this goes back to the way that you know each procession of the simulacra does contain elements of the prior eras of simulacra. And one thing that I think is particularly interesting with regard to Twitter and social media in this vein is the symbolic economy of it. And by this, I mean the likes, the retweets, follower counts, like there is a certain aspect of cultural or like of cultural capital of networks of prestige and so forth that can be attained. And although obviously we have the blue checks, which obviously that is a evolving situation, but I think gets to the heart of it. I guess the blue checks you could sort of think of as there's sort of an aristocracy, perhaps as some type of a metaphor, but there is the potential for someone like an ordinary person can become drill, right? It's like I have a anonymous shitposting account and have vastly more followers than a lot of like serious academics, which is kind of embarrassing, I think, to some extent. But at the same time, you know, there's a like perverse enjoyment in that too. It's a pure reduction to discourse. Discourse is what is exchangeable. You can swap words out for others. You can exchange them in the same way you can with memes. There's a complete detachment from materiality of them. Not in the sense of that there's not any materiality to tweets. I mean, it's, well, one or several electrons. We're not sure how many electrons are actually in the universe. There could just be one. Every time we observe it, there is a material process here. There are circuits, there are servers, and they are made with materials that require material relations of production to get to, of course. But in the, the, from the experience of communication, it is pure exchangeability. It is something you can send to the group chat. You can send to someone else. You can... It is a, there's a pure openness to it that is detached from any semblance of use value. And yet, I'm not saying Twitter presents us with the value form in its purest way, but in the way what a online post on any social media site does is it's an attachment of sort of exchange value from any grounding of wealth. There's no wealth on Twitter. You can't spend anything. You can only sort of offer something in the sense of, is this going to do numbers? Pure equivalence to numbers, pure equivalence, feel flattening down to exchange. You gain the ecstatic moment of putting yourself out there and being circulated for all of these circuits. And everyone has seen this private thought, which from all of human history would have been a passing moment, but it's now passed through this passing, it's now passed through all of these circuits, all of these networks, or as many as possible. I think that's why the introduction of the subscription plan was just a massive affront to the general economy that is Twitter, yes. at least the <laughs> axiom of social capital. I, yes. I mean, we can think about this in terms of Deleuze and Guattari in a way, because Elon Musk, in the sort of semiosphere of Twitter, his image is one of a despotic figure, whether he owns Twitter or not, right? In the form of this kind of, you know, tech CEO, capitalist, the guy who made it on daddy's money sort of thing. All of that factors into the kind of cachet that he has and the sort of social capital that he has entered in into Twitter with once becoming the CEO. So there's that. But the things that he tried to do seem rather antiquated, right? We can put a finer point in it and say exactly what those things are. But moreover, he's in violation of the sort of tacit Machiavellianism that takes place in the semiosphere of Twitter, which is there are a variety of ethos, ethoses. We have the kind of nice guy accounts. We have the scold accounts and those sorts of things. One of the mistakes that I think he's made from a leadership perspective and from a semio-capital perspective is to talk about rhetorically the kinds of things that will be happening on Twitter over the next few months. Hey, there's going to be mistakes that are made. He's crying on the timeline about being ratioed by Stephen King. He's breaking all the rules. He clearly doesn't have a grasp of the terrain. And for that, he's being humiliated. And Cooper, I know you have a lot to say about that. Well, if I could just say something quickly, just think of all of the murder that goes into those circuits, that goes into those networks. Think of the entirety of human history of capital self-development has led to this. A man whose assets aren't really wealth, it's purely devalued form, it's purely semi-capital. 
and the entire world is really run for the production of billionaires like this. And this is what they're doing with the money. All of the collective murder, and this is what they're doing with the money. And this is why we need to... They are doing... this. They, he is literally suiting cocks into space, or he's buying Twitter. This is, his entire value assets, because it's value and not wealth, is based on this. This is what they are doing with... This is Everyone is suffering and dying, and this is what the people at the top are doing with the fucking money. Not even doing this competently. Elon Musk, Trump, these are figures par excellence of the type of society that Baudrillard describes and saw. They're as flimsy as a playing card. It's kind of like the scene from, there's a scene in My Cousin Vinny where he's talking about the prosecutor's case. It's like a card. It has sides. You can see it. It's got edges. If you look at it, yeah, it looks like it has depth. But when you turn it on its side, like it's totally flat. There's nothing to it. And I think you can see this in the way that obviously... We're sort of told this narrative about someone like Elon Musk being the sort of great man, the sort of man that understands capital. Well, he obviously has no clue. Like you just said, he doesn't understand the economics of Twitter. It's really hilarious to kind of see this happen. But I think there's something too here with this like vicious capital aspect of it. The destruction of capital is involved here as well. But I even want to say that something like this recent crypto scenario that has happened is another great example of the procession of simulacra. It's this continuous sort of folding and folding of reality. And not only that, the incident that occurred with, I think the name of the company's Eli Lilly. They're the pharmaceutical mm. oh, right, company right. controls <laughs> insulin. And maybe this brings us to another question, a sort of turning point in the discussion here is, this was an instance, a very Baudrillardian instance, in, in the sense that we cannot fight on the plane of the real, but we can fight on the plane of the symbolic order. As I understand it, and I, I don't have all the details here, but it sounded like that stock took a big tumble as a result of shift in Twitter's architecture that somebody was able to create. <laughs> Billions, yeah. So someone is able to create a parody account of this company, but they tweeted out in earnest, hey, insulin's been made for free. We will no longer be charging. And therefore everything dropped off, which I, I mean, Anarchists, communists, take note. Write that down in your book. There's something in your toolkit. But it definitely demonstrates proof of concept, I guess we could say, for Baudrillard, that we can fight on the symbolic plane and have real effects in the financial world. Mm. What's even funnier about this, even funnier and really drives this further home, is that Elon Musk was replying to Bernie Sanders because Bernie got involved and he tweeted about insulin prices being high. And then Elon Musk is in his replies trying to fact check him. Well, then Twitter, his own platform, fact checked his reply and he ended up deleting the tweet. So mm. there you have it. <laughs> right. And I think over the past few days and weeks, we've seen much more prominently the use of the function where the fact checking bubble that comes up or re viewers of this tweet have said X, Y, and Z appears to be more the case than what the tweeter claims to be true. And it's kind of ironic and hilarious. And also, it's completely cannibalized by the collective mass of Twitter. So all of these foibles that we see in real time, all the mistakes that he's made, has fallen back upon the very axiom of Twitter semi-capital. And I think adjacent to that is this lingering anxiety about the collapse of the platform, which actually I don't think will happen ultimately. I think it's far too valuable to lose whatever Twitter is, unless somebody sabotages the servers or the codes or, or whatever. But I think even that anxiety falls back upon this sort of exchange of semi-capital, this purely discursive form of combat that's taking place. Right, exactly. And I think to even go further there is like Elon Musk owes, he added like some ridiculous amount of debt service onto Twitter's books to do the leveraged buyout. So in the Within the question of is tweeting praxis if you are costing Elon Musk server space with your tweets, ultimately one person can't do it. But if we're all collectively tweeting a lot, then we can cost Elon quite a bit of money at the end of the day. So there is some type of material praxis to a shitposting. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite protest actions in years, it was a couple of years ago, actually. I think it was pre-pandemic. Extinction Rebellion, what they did was they basically blockaded the roads with their own bodies outside of the printers of the main Murdoch newspapers. 
And this was a beautiful action because people think, oh, people don't read papers that much or they can get it online. What do these papers do? They love demonizing protests, especially in the UK. What they do is if you block them from circulating, almost all the stories that come up on the online page are them moaning about being blocked. So anything anyone else they could have gone for that day, and papers are newspapers in Britain are essentially a stochastic terrorist organizations that try to demonize minorities and create violence against them, they only focus on this blockage. You can take them on both terrains because the Simeo capital only goes into essentially panic, what Takuma would call panic mode, because there's a blockage here. It's not supposed to get, you can fight them on both planes, be it either individually or group wise, where you can sort of essentially take the network of communication and then render it inoperative through clogging up through the way in which these platforms themselves are narcissistic. They are not, they see themselves as people in a way. And it gives many ways. I mean, you see this in Elon Musk, right? This is, this explains Elon Musk here. You could also, I think, draw a parallel between for Lenin, it was the trains for us. It's the data servers and I'll just leave it. All I'm saying is whoever can destroy a fig is they who have control of it. Musk cannot destroy this thing. He can, can you see my Chris knife? Chris it oh, is absolutely. Okay, so we've got doing cosplay. We've got yes. talking about Elon Musk. This is both the problem with talking about Baudrillard people is that you not talk about the most inane aspects of semio capital as actually just posting online because they're inseparable. I'm wondering if at this point, if we've exhausted this essay, have we gone no, through I, all I, the concepts? I don't. I don't think so. I think we should recapitulate a little bit at least on the aspects of hot and cool media and yeah mm. we didn't do that McLuhan largely and sort of the formalist aspect of this now Taylor and I on our show we recently spoke with Matthew Flissfader about his new book Algorithmic Desire and one thing that I do agree with Matthew on is the sort of way that there's a I guess a what a medium something like television in the 50s to I don't know when you would sort of say maybe the 80s is kind of the dominant mode of sort of entertainment, communication, et cetera. Now I think obviously the social media have become the dominant mode of our area as far as communication is concerned. And since the medium is the message, I guess it's sort of circumscribed within these sort of boundaries or these logics like Adam has discussed with these sort of circuitous exchange, flat exchange ontology or what, whatever. So there's that aspect, but just to speak to the distinction between hot and cold, I think the cool medium is something where like the user or the viewer has to fill in certain aspects of it. And the hot medium would be something where everything is immediately, everything is there. There's very little opportunity to get into the imaginary, but I don't know, just to bring up that distinction. So I don't know exactly where Twitter would fall, like it has aspects both because of the way you can mobilize not only text, but video, GIFs, et cetera, et cetera, photos, hell, yeah. even audio now. Yeah, I think maybe speaking from personal experience here, having been probably the oldest person in the room right now, but having been a child of the 80s and the early 90s, just the sort of magnanimous nature of the sitcom or in the 80s, MTV, for example, when that information was presented to you, it made the TV seem like this insurmountable edifice, right? And the hopes and dreams and aspirations of anyone who would become an actor or a musician after that all had to take into account whatever was coming out of that medium. And so it had definitely this sort of attractor aspect to it. But at the same time, we were not absolutely occasional like phone in, vote, America's Funniest Home Videos sort of thing. We didn't have that sort of two-way communication with the media. Now, the media is clearly dependent on the user. Just think about what we're doing right now. We're recording on Zoom. We'll be uploading to a YouTube channel. We're on Twitch live right now. Uh, effectively, we're doing our own television show right here. And for what? I mean, for some of us, of course, it supports our livelihood to a certain extent. But also, I think we have been trained on this impulse to interact in this space to the extent that it's a foregone conclusion that we will do so. Sometime this weekend or throughout next week, 
Yeah, we are going to be tweeting. We're going to be recording. Hey, do you want to come on the podcast? Sure, of course. Yes, I'm going to be on the podcast, right? It's part of the circulatory system of our desire right now to the extent that our appearance in these online spaces is almost unquestionable. For example, like growing up in like, let's say the 90s, for example, to ask your neighbor friend to be in, in your home movie that you're making. Oh, really? You want me in that? Oh my gosh. Okay. I guess I'll do it. Right. There's a bit more of a social barrier to that. It seems like all of that has collapsed to, to a certain extent. I mean, just to bring up the, cause I know you mentioned McLuhan, Coop. I mean, what's interesting is his critique, or it's not a critique of McLuhan, but in the sense which technology has accelerated beyond it. Before, yeah, the medium was the message. It's like the TV was there to sell you not only just TV, but the sitcom was there to sell you the sitcom. The very medium of organizing these actors to produce this kind of spectacle was to say, in a way, it was to kind of remind that's the family centered, everything is all right in the end structure of sitcoms was always kind of providing certain normative guidelines for the nuclear family back when. Remember the nuclear family? Yeah, we should abolish it a bit more, to be honest. Read some Sophie Lewis, that's always good. But at some point in the, just towards the end of the essay, Baudrillard says the message for McLuhan, the medium is the message. Now the message no longer exists. The message is lost in the medium because the objects that the objects that would constitute the message, the material qualities of the object, the use value of the object, is now completely lost in being reduced to an exchange value, in being reduced to a commodity. When drill set, when drill, well, there's a big tweet, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the content of the tweet. If anything, it's a relation of pure form and also a pure system of reference connections to other materials which make it funnier. Like, oh, do you remember this? Yeah, you remember when Drill said that? I mean, people bring back Drill's tweets today as kind of prophetic because, well, they are, but also at the same time, there's a circularity to what can be said. And um, I mean, that's all the sacrifice of the objects in being turned into objects of discourse. You have different main character on Twitter. Every day someone's the main character on Twitter, you better fucking hope it's not you. Because you then become a purely discursive object. You are just something on the screen and deservedly or undeservedly, I'm not saying some people don't deserve a good ratio here and then, will become a pure skirt object, be reduced to that. And the message, not in the sense of someone's good intentions behind this twitchy thing, but the very materiality of the person behind the screen becomes lost because they are purely the screen. I don't think necessarily a, a technophobic point, but just a, an expression of where we came to now. And this idea of the object being lost dissolved, completely losing itself. The message is completely losing itself in the medium. And that is the ecstasy of communication. Get out of your head. I agree. I think I would qualify, or I would adapt Baudrillard's claim to say that there are various lanes, almost like a highway, where the message is truly lost in the communication, in the sort of fast lane. And I think that happens to all of us at various times, depending on how invested that you get. For example, in a main character drama on any given day, you just get sucked into the stream of tweets. Everything that you click, everything that you like feeds back into the system and it's going to deliver you more of that. And the sort of slower lane is, and I don't know, this, just speaking for myself, this is probably the case for some other folks too. I've made an attempt like, wow, I've just been far too online today, far too much in the fast lane. I just want to streamline my communication or my consumption of content online just to these YouTube videos. I'm going to shut off Twitter for the day, just watch YouTube. But what people don't realize is whatever you do, it's all connected. Everything you clicked on YouTube, the next time that you get back in the fast lane, that's going to be part of the algorithm. That's going to be part of the code. I had a quote that I think might be a good coda for this as well. Let me pull this up really quickly. Let's see. In the Vitz, language makes itself more imbecile than it, real, it really is. It escapes its own dialectic and concatenation of meaning only to hurl itself into a process of delirious contiguity, into instantaneousness, into pure contiguity, into pure objectality. The evil demon of language resides in its capacity to become object, where one expects a subject in a meaning. The vitz is the predestination of language to become nonsense from the instant it is caught in its own devices. In this, there is a passion of the object which could very well make us rediscover an aesthetic force of the world beyond peripatia and subjective passions. I think the way that I will go out on this episode is to, once again, highlight this dynamic of, I think Elon Musk is coming from the sort of pre-ecstasy of communication. 
paradigm. I think his entry onto Twitter as the CEO of Twitter, as the owner of Twitter, was his bid to reclaim center stage, as it were, in the sort of theatrics of this pre-digital subjectivity. I think, and many people have said, there's nothing more that Elon Musk wants is to be funny. What is the very first thing that he tried to do to be funny on his first day at Twitter is that he brought in a kitchen sink. I mean, I can't think of a more antiquated, campy gesture. And it's interesting because the way that it was filmed, the way that I saw it anyway, it was almost like the security camera filmed it. And so you didn't get the thrust of the humor that he was attempting. And what I find interesting is that his will to embody this sort of hero archetype in the form of the successful entrepreneur, it's almost as if he's lining up a shot at like a Kmart or a Walmart where he's going to take this portrait of himself, but it's almost as if the background that he's chosen eats him up and, and kind of digests him into this mosaic of these ironic fragments that then get converted into tweets. And we lose him as this kind of despotic figure. And he falls back onto the digital landscape, consumed, becoming part of the architecture, becoming part of the digitality. That's kind of an image that comes to mind here. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks and months with him. If, if he will like seek out the advice of mentors in the industry who can kind of calm him down and get him acclimated to the social dynamics of it, or if, if he'll just completely run aground with this project and be forced to sell at some point, I think that would be the most hilarious thing. I think that's probably the, the inevitable thing for him because it's going to come to his bottom line, his wealth. How much is this going to cost him in the end? He came, he bought Twitter because he had a message and he wanted to use the medium to deliver that message. Uh, too late. There is only the medium, Elon, because his message is, as soon as he says anything, he just becomes a discursive object because he only knows how to talk through posts. He wants to provide himself as an object through his medium that becomes, that's what he wants to be liked so much. He wants to be liked for who he is. Well, thanks to the world of people that him have created, there is nothing behind that mask. There's nothing behind that mask either. Just the genocidal history of European domination over the world, going from emerald mines to producing possibly one of the saddest human beings who ever lived. And I think you should through. And we didn't talk about this aspect of it. I think his bid to claim a kind of moral authority is also a bid to return to the seductive mode of communication. But he's absolutely now trapped within the subductive mode of communication. So all of these tweets about how we're going to make things better in the coming months, it's all laughable. That's also a moment when the giddiness occurs. When you see someone attempting to establish themselves as a serious figure in an always already ironic space, it's going to be the death knell for his moral authority in the end. What do we think about this? I hate to perhaps even jump into these waters, but I don't know, maybe there's something amusing or insightful with regard to the freedom of speech. And what is this sort of obsession with the freedom of speech, I mean, it's there's certainly like an aspect of a perhaps a perverse enjoyment in the troll or something like, but you know, it's kind of ironic because to me, I could sort of tweet anything I want already. My speech is effectively free. I mean, I'm not threatening people with violence. That is probably the only prohibition that I'm not doing and not because I'm above it. I mean, for me, the way that I see it is I'm not here to argue whether free speech is a good thing or a bad thing. Largely, it's a good thing. But I think this injunction to have a restoration of free speech flies in the face, once again, of the axiom of semio-capital. It's almost as if the god of free speech, like, and here I go back to Conan the Barbarian, my god is bigger than your god. The god of free speech lives within the world of the god of semio-capital and is forced to follow its dictates. Yeah, under our current regime, in, I'm specifying specifically in the imperial core, we have free speech is free in the same way that labor is free in Marx. You're free to say whatever you want because under Savio Capital, you only really have, because speech is now a commodity, purely it's data, you are free to enjoy as all you want, consume how you want in the barest sense of you have nothing. Your function is to be a speaking, consuming and work, working machine. And of course, that's, that's still an undergirding aspect there. And of course, there's the aspect of the democratic voice, but in terms of semio-capital, it's kind of it's kind of an outdated question on that level. I mean, 
for example, the protests going on and the riots and the, you know, and the fighting going on against the regime in Iran right now, that question is absolutely still, it's not free in the sense of free labor, that that is actually against a disciplinary power. But in the society of control, I think that question becomes less and less tied to a conception of the democratic voice or expression of voice in any public sense. There, to some extent, the private is still private. There are firewalls to keep these things out. There are, I mean, each time you have Weibo, I guess, but it's, there's still a spectacle. There. Not to say there's a less. It's not saying not not say put it in a schema of oh we're here more historically developed. No, it's that the parasite of capital has was born here and has come home to roost. And what's I don't know what's it called again when the violence periphery returns to the imperial core. It's the beginning of F, I believe. It's a different register here, but I think in terms of like as we are speaking, we're only free to speak. <laughs> Well, with that said, that's been about an hour. And so what I'll do at this time is viewers will get an edited version of this and it will be posted to the Zero Books and Repeater Media site. So thanks again, Cooper, for coming on. And we'll spend a few minutes with our patrons right now and do a little behind the scenes discussion. And please support Zero Books and Repeater Media and you'll be able to have access to these power room discussions. So thanks everyone. The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, a cure of violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.